Hi, uh, today we're on uh, the People Progressing podcast, and I'm just over the moon excited with having Kai Correa on here. Um, he's a the bench coach for the San Francisco Giants, and he's had a great um, rise in the coaching ranks, and we'll go over that and get into that. Um, but Kai, I'm just so excited to have you on here and help people understand where they can come, where they are at now, and how they can rise to that level that that you've risen to and, and some of the things that make you tick um can you can you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up and some of the things that happened as you were growing up yeah yeah of course and well first and foremost thanks for having me and uh, one of the the primary reasons why you and i have a relationship and why i wanted to be on this is is directly related to how i grew up and so as you know i'm the grandson son and nephew of high school coaches. And so high school coaches have always had great reverence uh, to me in terms of what they give and hours. And it's not for the pay, it's not for good for game. It's truly to, to be extensions of the classroom and teach and develop culture. And so um, wherever I've lived uh, in the US, I've formed relationships with the longtime local high school coaches. Those are the people I gravitated towards. And that's how you and I met. And, and it was the same for me growing up is that that was my my education in baseball. I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii, uh, a little city, 50,000 people on the east side of the Big Island, uh, relatively rural um, place. And um, the Big Island is so large that um, all the other islands can fit on top of it in terms of landmass. So it's much more country than it is urban. And my grandfather was the longtime high school baseball coach there, um, you know, from after um, World War II through his passing, um, uh, you know, a handful of years ago. And so he did that for a long time. And my father and uncle took his place as the, the local head coaches. And so I kind of grew up with that in my blood. And I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I had a, a, a young kid to ask me about, um, you know, like my baseline baseball background. And one thing I realized in talking to this kid, this guy was, a, he's a 16 year old um, athlete is that what, one thing I was fortunate to is I was privy to coach talk. You know, at, you know, players only hear a certain percentage of why and what things are being done. And after they leave, the coaches sit around in the bucket and they <laughs> really unpack it. And I didn't realize the value of that until I've gotten older that I sat there every day after school from five to eight to 12 to 13 years old. And I heard how plays and players were broken down and how the pieces on the board were being moved and why potentially this guy was going to go from left field to right field or why we we're changing starting pitchers the next day. And so I think that exposure to the baseball end of it um, was huge for me. You know, as a kid, you, you start thinking the game and the way those conversations unfolded. And then the other thing is the, the social wealth and culture component to that. I, I, I learned to appreciate the role of the coach. When I saw how revered my grandfather was in the community, when I saw how, you know, firemen or guys at the grocery store or those folks interacted with my dad, my grandfather took them back to being kids again and they had that gratuity um you know it showed me the value of the coach in a community and so i think both of those things combined being the son and the grandson and nephew of coach of a coach really led me to want to be in the profession and then gave me an advantage as i began yeah i say the same thing my dad was a high school coach too and i i grew up on the field i mean that's where i was all the time um, my mom would take me down after after school and I'd be down there with dad, you know, and I, I think what it really helped me, and I think what's kind of what you're going to here is in terms of leadership, it really helped me um, 
develop emotional intelligence because mm-hmm. I was really aware of how the other, all the players reacted to my dad once he made certain decisions, um, like playing time and, and all those kind of things. Like I would always get so nervous, like if, if a guy wasn't going to be in the lineup and I knew dad was going to hang the, the lineup and a guy wasn't going to be in the lineup, I was always nervous about how he was going to react towards my dad. So it always kind of made me really aware socially of other people and being able to read other people. Would you say that you kind of got that too? I think that's incredibly well put. And I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think being very in tune on how the coach's decisions affect like the ecosystem of team and the individual people is something when you're a coach's son, because the other thing is people say things to you, right? They don't hold back punches to the kid, right? Mm -hmm. They'll say something under their breath when they walk by, or you hear it from a classmate, you know, in in, in school when your dad's not around. And so you're acutely aware of the impact playing time and cuts. I used to dread cut time of year oh. as a kid because, you know, I'm going to see those folks at, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, out in the community, you know, yeah. and what are they going to say? And, and, and then you, you also grew to appreciate how well thought out those decisions were. Mm-hmm. They're never, you know, on a whim. The coach right. is very aware of the impact he has on kids' lives. And he's very thoughtful when he crafts the lineup. And when he makes his team and he says who's going to the JV and who's going to the varsity. And so I think that's a great point. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think that definitely had an impact on me as well. Well, and it really came to fruition for me when I was coaching my own son and I had to make cuts and knowing that he had to go to school and go through all that stuff and, and so forth. And it, it really, you know, I think when you look at it in the business world, it's the same way. If people have emotional intelligence and realize that every decision that they make affects somebody positively and somebody negatively. And the way you avoid problems is you handle the person that it handled, that it affected negatively first. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what I always did when when we had to make cuts. I wanted people to understand how hard it was on us because as coaches, as people of leadership, we get into it for people. We get into to help people grow and and become better than what they thought they could be. Right. So when we when we have to cut somebody, that's going against everything that we're getting into this profession for as a leader, not just in sports, but in business as well, I think. And um, so it really kind of helped us, you know, establish an emotional intelligence that kind of carries on today. Wouldn't you say that is kind of still helping you in your coaching today? A hundred percent. Right. And, you know, when you think about it, it's the same at every level. It's in recruiting in college and Mm -hmm. roster decisions in the fall and and at at the level I'm at now, it's about, you know, calling guys up and sending guys down. Yeah. Right. It can be so transactional. And, and it so doesn't, I, yeah. And it doesn't matter what level it's at. Yeah. Even in the major leagues, I think that's really, really telling. Uh, what, what is one thing that you can think of just off the top of your head, not to put you on the spot, but going back to your grandpa who fought in World War II? What, what's one thing that you got from him that you still carry today and still take into your coaching? Hmm. Gosh, you know, and the issue why, why that's tough is there's so many things that, yeah. into, you know, mm-hmm. I think, I think there's kind of like that blue collar workman, like attention to detail. You know, you go in, the coach goes in, you clock. Some days are hard, some days are easy, but you show up for your players every single day. I think that's what good coaches do. You're not, you know, they don't know what's going on at home or, you know, what's your, your other job. I think that's, that's one thing. And I think, um, you know, another thing 
is the uh, the love of the underdog, kind of not in the optimism, the unconditional optimism that you approach every player with when they walk into the yard. You're realistic about ability, but you 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 you're very hopeful on the ceiling. And and player. Yeah, and so that I think what when I watch you coach, what I see when I watch Kai coach, I see a guy who not only wants the guy to be good, he wants them to be great, but he wants them more importantly to be better than what they thought they even could be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I think that comes from I, I think that comes from Grandpa. I, you know, he coached at a pretty tough high school, and you know he would do funny things to our you know, a kid couldn't catch fly balls. So he got him out there in a catcher's mask, you know, and, yeah. and, and you'd get in trouble doing that today. But I think that the overarching theme was that he wasn't going to cut the kid loose. You know, he was going to try to make a left fielder out of this guy that probably shouldn't be on the team at all. Right. And I think the spirit of that is, you know, is what coaching is all about is that we, we want to be throw the life preserver. We want to show somebody that they can achieve the potential that they don't even realize. And that, and that's with every leader whether it's in sports or business uh, as a father, I mean, you're going to do the same thing with your little girl. As she starts to grow up, you're going to be doing the same thing to her because you want her to be as, as bad or good or better than what she even thought she could be. Now let's go to your dad. So what, what's something that you took from your dad that you still use today, not just in coaching, but in life as well. Yeah. You know, I think my dad, he it's kind of like an overflow from grandpa is he's like he is like the the underdog optimist to the extreme you know that was the i've never seen someone um roll with the punches so well you know when we talked about the social intelligence of recognizing the negative body language and negative comments that come with the coach's decision as a kid it affects you in a way that you want to react to it you want to say something to that guy you you're afraid of it happening as the coach's kid because you see it front and center. And I think my dad was incredibly elite at wearing it, not being reactive, understanding that that was part of the job and you take the good with the bad and you take wear those late night phone calls and, and, and you don't care about what's being said of in the stands. You know that you stand by your decision and it was the right one. And I think that's something I always found really admirable and I haven't mastered it yet myself but I'd hope I'd be as good as he is at that. I mean, that's, that's what I thought. The one thing is that managing criticism, I didn't see anyone do it as well as he did. That's really cool. And and again, the things that you have taken, because what I see in Kai is a lifelong learner. How important is that as a learner or as a leader, I'm sorry, as a leader to be a lifelong learner? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a linchpin for me. If I was listing like certain criteria that have led to like good fortune in my life, that would be in the top five immediately. And I think what people forget when you ascend, right? When you get promoted in your workplace, right? Or you get a better job or you go to a better college, you're, you're now at a, a new level where it's not, you, you've never made it. You're now surrounded by many more learning opportunities. Right. And so if you have the lifelong learner mentality, when you go from coaching high school and club to division three, now I've got a, four resources on staff that coach small college baseball for a long time. And I can suck in everything I can from them, plus the experiences that happen in the field. Then you go to division one. No, it's not that you made it. All right. I'm going to take what I did there and I'm going to replicate it. No, now I got a new group of guys 
to learn from and absorb, right? And, and take everything that I can from them and listen and learn. And then I go to the minor leagues. Did I make it? No, like for me now, this is a great shot. Now I'm in these rooms where these baseball men who've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years are discussing plays and strategies and situations. What am I going to do? I'm going to shut, shut up and I'm going to absorb again. And so I would say that thought process, both taking the life, the things that happen around you um, that are organic as learning experiences, and then conjure up your own independent study time mm-hmm. are two linchpins to me for a, being a lifelong learner, right? I think a lot of people think it's just go, I'm going to go read books, I'm going to go research, right? And then they don't learn from the folks around them with experience. I think the ultimate combination is growing from those organic moments and situations that ha- and conversations that happen throughout the course of work, and then also doing your own independent research. And so that's the balance I try to achieve. And I think, like you said, I think that's one of the most important things for me as a leader. So how important um, would you say as a leader as in, in your lifetime, in, in, in growing as a leader as you have, how important is listening? I mean, integral, that's, that's the key part to that organic component. I was talking about, right? And if, if you're the one doing the speaking, right, it's really tough to speak and listen at the t- same time, right? And I love t- speaking as much as the next guy. But in those moments when you're, you're really hearing what people are saying, you know, and un- uninterrupted, it's priceless because you can't replicate experience, right? How the years that you've coached, my grandfather coached, my father's coach, I can't expedite that. I can't be a really, really good coach and a really good researcher and read all the books and have all the strategy and have 10, 20, 30 years of hard decisions come out of those pages. That's not a thing. But what I could do is listen to why you made those decisions. Listen to how you made those decisions. Listen to your process. Listen to how you plan. And maybe that will help me give a, have a little more context and close the gap. And so I think that's what we all seek, right? We all seek the maximum amount of context. Good decisions come from a great deal of context. And context is built by listening to people who've made more of them. So I think that's a really important piece. Yeah, so real quick, take us through your journey, Kai. Your your journey as a, as a player in Hawaii, mm-hmm. all the way to where you're at now, quickly. I, I know that's kind of a long journey, but yeah. it's an amazing journey to me. It's something I look up to so so amazingly well I, I just think it's it's a crazy story and I, I just love it because it's it's a journey full of listening I call it list and learn right every part of that journey that you've gone to you've listed and learned from each one of them and just tell us about your journey yeah I, I uh, so I grew up in Hilo like I talked about earlier and I was a really really bad youth player and so there was a significant concern that maybe I would put my dad in a tough situation when it came to high school time. I was just kind of little and weak and I had little league seasons where I was hitless, but I cared so much and I tried so hard. And then fortunately for me with hard work and just kind of luck in terms of how you grow and mature, suddenly at like 13, 14, like I started catching up to my peers and then and passing some of them and becoming better. And I think that's one of the most important things in my journey is how bad it started. So I've never, ever, as a coach, lost the appreciation for how hard the game is yeah. and how tough it is to not have, be successful. 
And so that was kind of the foundation in which my baseball journey was built is that I had this great love for it and it didn't love me back. I didn't receive the results. <laughs> and so um, through high school, I improved as a player um, and was fortunate enough to you know, play with some really good guys. You, you know, when you hit in front of Colton Wong, you're gonna get a lot of fastballs and they're not gonna walk you. You know, when you hit, be, be, you know, I hit behind a professional baseball player and in front of a professional baseball player. So I knew how to hit and run. I knew how to get the bunt down. I knew how to hit a ground ball when they're on third base. And so it put me in a really good position to um, have a higher high school war. And um, I got to be an all-conference player as a result of that, um, but much more um, as a result of the work and the cerebral and not the ability. And, and then I had the opportunity to go play at the University of Puget Sound, which is a Division three school. Um, I, which my family and I chose that. And I, and I similar experiences, I think, to you and, and, and your son, where mm -hmm. you're finding that balance of, you know, you know you, you have that reality that playing at a higher level is achievable and it's still incredibly cool and you're still in a very small percentage, but also you're going to go pro in something other than life and playing. Yeah. So what's the balance? What's the best? And so the University of Puget Sound is a really, really um, well-respected liberal arts institution where I also could play. And so um, I went there and um, the interesting thing is I thought, okay, you know, I'm a all-state player from the state of Hawaii this is division three baseball. I'm going to go there. This is these guys probably suck. I'm going to go there and play right away. And they were so much fit, more physically superior. They were men. They were 21, 22, 20 year old men. And I couldn't hang physically just that's the 6am conditioning, let alone in gameplay. Suddenly all my little bags of tricks and in-game knowledge wasn't enough to close the gap. And so I had to do another step to catch up, but I'd done this before in my life. I needed to become more physically, um, more physical and it, it, you know I have to improve bat speed and arm strength just to get on the field and so that was a fun journey as well and it really gave me continued that humility in the manner in which I thought about myself as a player even though I just reached recent success and I found my way into the field uh, towards the end of my career and and started becoming a regular and and and, and very similar to high school where it kind of concluded on a really high note and then it was like okay what the heck am I going to do so I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to be a history professor who coaches high school baseball mm -hmm. in the, whatever college, or maybe I'm going to be a college administrator. Maybe I'll be a, you know, in student affairs or a dean and I'll be assistant at like a local liberal arts. I wanted it as like baseball is the second thing and I had this passion for politics and history and, and student affairs and education. And so I, I wasn't sure. And I kind of needed that stall year to help me figure it out. And um, my coach, Brian Billings at the University of Puget Sound, he offered me the opportunity to come on as a you know, $3,000 a year assistant. And I, I, I jumped to it. I said, hey, you know, I've coached summer ball for the last two summers. I've coached 16-year-old kids, 15-year-old kids. I love that. Uh, why not? Why, why not give it a shot? What's one year? Yeah. You know, and so I jumped in. And um, again, another thing where tough situations become good fortunes. I didn't realize how much my relationships were going to change with yeah. these guys were my teammates. Mm -hmm. I'm having a beer with them two months ago. Now I'm getting mad at them when we, we screw up our cut and relay. Right. So this made for really, really tough conversations. And I knew how it felt to be in the dorm room, you know, complaining about something the staff did. <laughs> and now I, now I was no longer in the dorm room. I was in my apartment, not part of that conversation. I was probably the topic of that conversation. So when you want to talk about that emotional intelligence piece, now you're acutely aware of what's going on and you're exceptionally thoughtful about how your decisions and the things you say affect 
the, the ball club as a whole and the individuals. And so that was with great fortune that that was my first job and it was exceptionally tough. And I'll have no tougher job, even in the major leagues, than coaching my friends. That was the, will always be the toughest coaching job I ever had. And so I went through there and we did that for three seasons and, and, and we improved as a defense and I found passion uh, for that style of play as hitting and, and pitching became more and more scientific and more and more research-based. Defensive play stayed pure. It was about playing catch. It was about attention to detail. It was about knowing your role, your responsibility, understanding the priorities and executing. And I love that because I could, I could still do a ton of modern research and integrate analytics, but the principles my grandfather taught me when I was a five-year-old boy still played. Yeah. And so that kind of became my, my niche. And, I, and I, I started to do independent research and I started speaking about at camps and clinics about it. And after three years, it was kind of like, okay, what's, what's next? Now I know this is what I want to do. I'm, I want to coach baseball for the rest of her life. I'm in. I'm in. How do I make it work financially that I don't have to do anything else? That becomes the goal. Yeah. And um, I thought to myself, okay, well, the next step is division one, right? And that's easy to write down on a, on a spreadsheet and easy to say, but how do you get there, right? So you're doing research. And so I start quickly, you know, going through my resources and trying to figure out what division one coaches have I interacted with along the way. And I, and I spoke at an event in Pepperdine, um, in 2013, and I remember there was this guy um, named Carly Wasaki in attendance, and he gave me his business card at the end of it. And I said, okay, well, I'm gonna call this guy, you know, and sees what he's going on. And, and fortunately for me, Coach Wasaki had, um, he had an opening, he had a volunteer opening, and it, it was a slam dunk. So I headed out there, and again, now here's the thing about good fortune that comes from bad fortune. I had no idea. They had no money. Yeah. You know, they had no money. No. Um, and, you know, the staff was working their absolute butts off just to make it work in the current circumstances. And they had garnered a decent amount of respect um, just using what they had. And I had no idea. You know, I wasn't the assumption that every, all things were created equal. And so part of my job as his volunteer was to create revenue in addition to make players better in addition to help um and in addition to help bring in better players as well and so the only thing i could think of in terms of creating revenue was running camps you know i'd done camps my whole life i'd done camps at puget sound so why not do camps and so i started hosting camps up at northern colorado to feature the quality of coaches we had and to create opportunities for Colorado kids and have interactions with high school coaches. And as we did that and it grew and grew, I thought, okay, I need more regional and national advertising for these camps. They're going well. So I started shooting 30 second video spots that were advertisements for those camps. And those became the original Friday Fielders videos. And so once those videos, camp season was done, it was time to go to work. It was time to coach our club. People started tweeting at me saying, hey, where are those videos? thinking that we were doing them for instruction and exposure as opposed to advertising. So I said, shoot, well, I guess maybe this is a good thing for our program. Maybe once a week, I'll put up a video of our guys playing catch or our guys doing some kind of drill and it can, can keep the train rolling. It can maintain recruit interest. It can, um, um, it can also serve as advertising for future camps. So I started doing those once a week videos. And I think at the beginning, you know, 12, 15 people would watch them. And I'd get excited. That thought was cool. 
you know, and that magnified as time went on. Um, and, and we improved our on-field results. We improved the quality of recruits we were signing and we were imp improved the, the size of our camps. And, and those videos kind of standalone um, were, were a big part of it. And little did I know that other really important people were watching those videos. You know, I thought, okay, it's great. High school coaches are watching them. Kids are watching them. But I found out that professional organizations were, had been watching them. And so I got a call from the Cleveland Indians um, in, uh, gosh, winter of 2017. And they wanted me to come out to Cleveland and interview um, to be one of their minor league infield coaches. And I had no idea. I thought it was a prank. You know, that was in the spirit. My exposure for myself was in the spirit of those things. It was, you know, creating our, us the most successful program possible, doing my part as a member of the staff. And so I went out there and we talked through it. And um, I was fortunate enough to, to get the job with Cleveland and, and head out and become their Arizona infield coordinator, which meant I was coaching the youngest and newest members of the organization. I was basically part of the onboarding team. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, again, good fortune comes my way. Johnny Goral, Robbie Thompson, Travis Fryman, Anthony Medrano, John McDonald, all these really, really longtime successful infield instructors who had produced Gio Urshela and Joey Wendell and Francisco Lindor and Eric Gonzalez and years and years of major league infielders, they all were still there working. And I got to be in the room and this is where listening comes in. And I got to absorb the years of them riding the bus and having tough conversations and making position changes. And um, I was fortunate to have be surrounded with those guys and learn and, and collaborate beside them. And then I, uh, I was promoted to the overall defensive coordinator uh, for, the, uh, for the organization, um, and, which allowed me to spend some time with our major league staff and get really quality time with Brad Mills and Sandy Alomar Jr. and Mike Sarball and, and most importantly, Tito Francona and see how they worked and see how things were different at that level and things were the same at that level and, and, and kind of recognize some gaps I needed to close if I was going to coach there one day. Um, well, along the way, uh, Gabe Kapler had been watching, and, and, and I, I didn't know. From the days at Northern Colorado, um, he had been kind of consuming the work and tracking the on-field progress. And uh, he gave me an opportunity to interview when I was only 29 to be on his bench at, in Philadelphia. And um, the, the role went to an older coach, Bobby Dickerson, who's you know somebody I really look up to in the organization. I mean, uh, in professional baseball. I played with Bobby. Really? Yeah, he probably doesn't remember me, but we played together in the Jayhawk League in uh, out in uh, Hutchinson, Kansas, one summer when I was in oh, college. That that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, so I, you know, the road to Bobby, um, but it was a great experience, and more than anything else, it showed me two things: Hey, I, I got a shot to do this, mm -hmm. and B, gosh, I still got some stuff I need to learn. Right? I still I got a gap. The gap between myself and Bobby is significant. There's so much more that he's done, he's learned. Guys like Perry Hill and Brian Butterfield and Ron Washington, the experiences they've had, um, I, I, need, I need to play catch up in that regard. And so um, went back, worked with, in the Indians system for another year in that defensive coordinator role. And then Cap came calling again when he got the opportunity in San Francisco and hired me um, to be his bench coach. And, and that's what I do in present day. Um, in my bench coach role, it's a lot of fun. It's a dream job, obviously. Um, as the bench coach, I, you get to run spring training. So if you facilitate the schedule, the camps, kind of all the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, and then I get to do, a, a, obviously, a lot of infield instruction. 
that's the primary thing under my umbrella, some team defensive instruction, and then assist in game management, you know, be part of that larger group that suggests ideas and asks questions and finds the best matchups. Um, but the biggest component of my job more than anything else is finding the balance with all the information that's out there and the analytics that's out there and um, the actual game being played on the field. And so um, long story short, uh, you know, that's, that's the journey from player to coach. I tried to condense it as much as possible, but also, you know, recognize the, the, the small moments, uh, uh, you know, that created growth along the way. And I, I think the thing I take out of your journey is how you always, always, in everything you did, growing and growing and growing and growing, was you were always listening and learning and you were always willing to observe and just watch, listen and learn. And now you'll be able, and along the way, you're able to, you know, coach what you believe in and coach what you know, which is unbelievable, the amount of knowledge that you have. But that's all because you put your ego aside and said, hey, I don't know it all. And I am so excited to keep learning and growing. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And not, just like anybody else, you know, that my ego gets in the way as well, right? Because you can be prideful of the amount of work you put in. Yeah. You can be prideful of your preparation. You can mm -hmm. be prideful of the amount of listening you've done. Yeah. And I think it's the acknowledgement that it's never over, you know, that it's a dirt path. That's the most important thing. And every once in a while, those moments that I brought up, they weren't moments that I walked into and I was going to listen right away. There were moments that I was fortunate enough to fail in that reminded me I got to keep listening, you know, and, and, and that's, that's an important piece. And I, I, I have a saying that life's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. And the sports that you and I coach baseball is there's, there's an old saying that it's a game of failure because a guy in the major leagues can fail seven out of 10 times and make millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And I've kind of turned that around and said, I don't think it's a game of failure. I think it's a game of complete opportunity because when you fail seven out of 10 times, that's seven times that you have an opportunity to learn from your failure. It's not, it's not failing seven times because at least you went out there and you gave it everything you had. It just didn't work out at that point. And you can learn from that experience and what maybe what you could do the next time. And um, I think that's what you've done your whole career is you're just, you're always looking at opportunities to grow. You're always looking at that opportunity to help others grow. And I think that's what sets you apart. I appreciate you saying that. And that's definitely the case with the major leaguers that I'm fortunate enough to work with is they are some of the greatest adapters and adjusters in regard to athletes that I've ever been around. And let's, yeah. let's, let's get into that. What, what's the difference between, because I say this all the time. I had Walt Weiss on last week. Um, who's the bench coach for the Braves. And I, I kind of asked him this question too. What separates a guy? Because you, you've coached now from er, almost every level all the yeah. way up. What separates a guy? Because there's so many guys out there that are so talented and have so much ability and skill level. What's the difference between a guy who, who makes it to the major leagues and a guy who, who maybe doesn't? Yeah. Well, it's cool. First off that you had Walt last week, I think we might be the only bench coaches that have coached high school baseball in the last decade. Yeah. So, awesome. so, that, so that's, that's a fun, uh, fun comparison. I, I, I'm interested to hear what he said after I give my answer first, I think it's a, it's the old floor and ceiling thing, right? So I think all the major leaguers have exceptionally high ceiling because they have some superpower, right? Whether it's yeah. vision, perception, 
speed, arm strength, rotational power, they, the coordination to apply bat to ball, they have some God-given gift that makes them superior to 99% of the population. But the minor leagues are, and college are shock full of those guys as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the ceiling component. So they aren't without that. But I think what the major leaguers have is they have a ridiculous floor. Like their worst is such a, a high clip. Right? You watch a major league infield in spring training, right? You can, I, I can catch at first base in spring training, thinking back to Jose Ramirez. And I, can, I could have been seated on a six foot ladder on the most like precarious little ladder possible. And I would never have had fallen off that ladder. He hit me in my chest over and over and over. He'd spin and throw, he'd throw it in the low slot and throw. And I think that's what they are is their consistency is absurd. Their worst day is still better than most people's best day. And I think one thing's a product of talent, right? Their ceiling's a product of talent, but I think their floor is a product of their works, their work and their routines. And I think major leaguers are exceptional at knowing what they need to prepare. They go through the same routine in the training room, in the weight room, onto the practice fields, in the cages to repeat, to create the, the solutions to the problems they're going to face in the game. So therefore, when they get in weird spots or they get a tough pitch or they get a tough hop, they can make the adjustment. They have the movement in their bag of tricks already. They're not improvising and, and, and they can go from there. And so I think that's what separates them is when you watch, you know, when my, you watch minor leaguers in spring training games, you can have a guy played in high A come up and strike Mike Trout up on a, you know, on a chance. Mm -hmm. He's flashing his ceiling for you, mm -hmm. but he might give up consecutive walks the next two batters to two guys you never heard of, yeah. right? You can have a minor league player come up and play in the eighth inning of a spring training game and homer off a big league closer who never gives up homers. But you could, he could give away 10 at bats the next day. I think, the major leaguers, they don't have that letdown. They work at such a high clip and they rehearse and they practice and they train and they adjust at such a high clip that the bottom, the floor of their in-game performance is incredibly high. And so that's my observation is as I've climbed through different levels, people with the high ceiling exist at every level, but the floor gets higher and higher the levels you go. And how much is that as their mindset? You know, I think mindset's a huge component because you, for two reasons, right? You have to have that mindset to put in that quality of work, to do that religious of routines with varied results. I think that's the one thing. And then the second thing is you have to have the mindset to overcome what you call those opportunities for learning. As they climb through levels and as things get more and more difficult, they have to reevaluate and reshape what success looks like for them. And so I think both of those things are products of the quality of mindset that they and, present. And let's look at what, what, now let's throw in mental toughness to this mix. What do you think about that with these guys? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge component. Now that's on a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. I'd love to come on as a coach and tell kids that every guy is mentally tough to the same theory. And that's not, you got to have some mix, right? It's like making a stew. All the yeah. things we talked about in the last five minutes, you just got to have good parts of each of them. Yep. You know, you can be slightly less mentally tough than the next guy, but gosh, you better be a better adjuster. Yeah. Right. Or you better have a high end skill, but you got to have all those components. You can't be without them. The car doesn't run. And how do you coach that? How do you coach heart or mental toughness into guys? It, is that, a, to me, that's one of the hardest things to do, but I also think it's one of the most fun things to do or the most challenging things to do. And I love that challenge. Yeah. I think, 
that's a really tough thing, right? And I think one of the first things for that is awareness. Mm -hmm. is the player has to recognize that there's an opportunity for growth because it's deeply personal. It's not a swing change, right? A mentality change or a mentality evolution is very tough. And so I think creating awareness, showing them either video or, you know, or testimonial that allow and asking the right questions that allow them to realize like, oh gosh, maybe I got to reevaluate what I think about from pitch to pitch or from practice to practice or game to game. So I think that's the first step is creating that awareness. I think too often as coaches, we go in with the solution before the player even knows there's the problem. Right. And so I think creating that awareness is the first thing when, cause it's going to be about to have a series of tough conversations. And so then the second, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. And then the second thing is creating an opportunity for ownership. When you're talking about yes. mental toughness, right. You're talking about partnering with the player. It can't be a coach driven thing, right? The, the, the coach is the co-pilot, right? And, that, and the player is the one driving the car. You could say, hey, you might slow down a little here. Hey, we should take this turn, but you can't grab the wheel. You know, and I think once you create awareness, then there's that opportunity for ownership. They need to be the captain of those things. And you need to be the bumpers in the bowling alley that keep kind of guiding it down the road. And then the third thing is you got to know that it's not going to be linear. These are habits that have been established by mom and dad and by the third grade teacher and everybody in between. And it's going to go five steps backwards, forward, three steps backwards, one step forward, two steps backwards. And you're going to be going up and down that staircase and you can't lose patience. One of the toughest things as a coach is losing patience for those really tough problems to solve, like the guy who throws his helmet, you know, or the guy who always says something to say to the umpire. These are habits that are harder to break than arm patterns. Mm -hmm. And and I think you have to recognize that it's not going to be foolproof that you're going to go back and forth. And so those are the three most important things to me, creating awareness of the problem, partnering with the player. So it's, they're the owner, they're the driver of that change. And then acknowledging that it's not going to be a clean path to success. So again, creating awareness is that emotional intelligence piece, right? Awareness is part of emotional intelligence. So helping your player have some emotional intelligence as well. And then the second piece is um, when you're, when you're working with your player, so your player doesn't feel like he's working for you. He's working yep. with you. And I think that's, that's a huge component of the second and third piece that you just said. So in that vein, when I watch you work with your major league guys on the videos that you've posted and stuff, and you're working with these guys, the one thing I noticed was this, how important is it to get to know your player or to get to know the person that you're leading in terms of coaching them? on the field or in the workplace or whatever? How important is it to get to know what strengths and stuff have and what motivates them and so forth? Yeah, I mean, it's everything. And I said the word earlier, but it's context, right? Like context before coaching, right? You, you, you have to. And that's the one thing I learned from college baseball is you're so lucky when you're the recruiting coordinator, you sit in the home, you hear dad talk about the kid, you hear mom talk about the kid, you hear them talk about themselves. You talk to the high school coach and you hear what he's got to say. You talk to the club coach, you hear what he's got to say. You get so much context. By the time you, they arrive on campus, you don't realize that that entire process has made you better off. And when I went to professional baseball and I started instructing these guys, I'm not the scout who drafted them. I'm not the general manager or the scouting director who made the decision. Right? I'm not even the farm director who's deciding what level. I'm just their infield coach. I have no context. And that was another reminder. Oh, shoot. I got to sit back and watch and listen a little bit. I got to see what makes them tick. I got to ask questions. I got to talk about their personal life. Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? Where do you live in the off season? And 
all these things go into the pot that influence we're, you know, how we go on a given day, how we learn on a given day, you know, how we deal with success, how we deal with failure. And so I think that's one thing that I've always taken is I always start, I always start a relationship with a player like a recruiting coordinator before I'm the coach, because that's, that's what college taught me is you need to gain that information. You need to have the background. That guy might've just changed his fielding to this style. And now you're going to propose a new change. Or the other thing we forget, this guy might be going through a difficult time in some, another category. Mm -hmm. It could be at home or it could be much closer. He could be making a swing change right now. How appropriate is for me to change the way he feels the same week that they're changing the way he swings, mm -hmm. right? That's, he's got no bandwidth for that. And so I, I think you're a thousand percent right. Those relationships and those, that context, it has to precede instruction. And I always go back to, I, I always remember telling all my young coaches who would get frustrated with a player that always tell me, you don't know what's going on in that, in, in that player's home life, yeah. or maybe something they failed a test at school that day or something, you know, like get to know them at a different level. Now you can really coach them at a different level. And I, as I watch you coach guys too, um, you really coach, and I want you to talk about the importance of coaching to the strength of the player. Yeah, you know, I think that's like the physical context. We yes. just talked about like the relationship and emotional context. The physical context is an important one. And I think that's where film's an important piece is I think coaches really do themselves a disservice when they just trust their eyes. I think the more you can watch your player move on your own time when he's not around, you know, film a practice session and watch all the ground balls, film off BP session, watch all that tape, go back and look at old game tape and really get a sense of, oh gosh, he's better at that than I thought he was. Oh, he's worse at that than I thought I was. Okay, well, the, the reason why coaching through those strengths is such a big thing is that's the thing that someone's prideful of, right? And you can not only use that to help them be more successful in the game, but you can use that as a leaping off point to then access the weakness. And I think we always want to say, all right, you're bad at this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to practice this. Mm -hmm. Like, well, there's a reason that he arrived with that inability, that physical, you know, that physical weakness. And so it's like, how did he arrive? There's also a reason why he arrived at that strength, right? It's like, hey, why, why is your squat so strong? but your bent press so weak. Oh, you know, well, my uncle taught me to squat when I was 14. And this is what I think about when I do that and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, now I can take that strength and reimagine that and speak in that language and find a new story and a new chapter to write about the bench press in the context of the squat. Mm -hmm. So now we're acknowledging what you do well, we're focusing on what you do well, and we're using that to replicate the process and improve what you do poorly. And I think that's an important thing in baseball. We have, there's so, things can be broken down to a million pieces and it's so easy to dissect somebody and cause paralysis by overanalysis and they forget what they even makes them tick. And we, I think focusing on the strength and you pivoting from there is a really important piece of the puzzle, psychologically and physically. Well, and I watch you, um, I, I, I was watching you do uh, work with your first baseman. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, I, I want, I like to kind of analogize sports into, into the real world, into business too. Cause I think what, everything we're talking about can help every leader out there, business, coaching, whatever it might be teaching. 
um, what we're talking about is, is the way I think people should handle people all the time, to be honest with you as a leader. But I watched you work with first baseman. And the thing that really struck me was this. You asked the player, what do you do better, the backhand or the forehand? And then when the player answered that question, you said, okay, let's work on that. So you asked them what they felt was their strength, what they felt more comfortable with. And then you took that and ran with it and you coached that strength to them. I thought that was awesome to watch. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that's a, it's an educational practice, right? Yeah. Question mm -hmm. is an educator or a leader's question, greatest weapon, right? Cause you get everything out of it. You mm -hmm. get all the things we just talked about. You, you, it plays to the emotional intelligence. It gives you more data in that part. It plays to the context. You get more understanding. It plays to the physical context. And then it also plays to the awareness. People will surprise you all the time with the way they answer questions in the field. A guy will tell you that he is bad at something that he's good at because he's just trying to say what you think, or he's so such a hard critic on himself or his dad's, his old man's tough on him. People will say things in the opposite. They'll tell you they're good at stuff that they're awful at. And getting that context and understanding, okay, you know, what, what's going on here is an important piece. And then the second reason why I ask questions like that is I'm a firm believer in a la carte practice plans. I got an idea of the destination where I want to go with mm -hmm. the session, but it, the, the buy-in is so much better when I allow, give you the menu and allow you to pick along the way. And sometimes I'll make a suggestion, but gosh, what kind of success are you going to get at any level when you ask a guy, hey, what drill do you want to do out of these two? And they pick the other one. There's not, you're not going to get the pushback, the eye roll. They're not going to be looking at their clock to see when it's on. They selected that, right? And they appreciate that they've even given the choice. And so I think those are the two ways that asking questions in a session help is they provide context and, and you get a sense of awareness. But more importantly, they also make the player feel like they're, they're guiding that session as well. And I think the huge part in the huge piece of that, because I used to ask that too with my players. Sometimes I'd ask my player, what do you think the lineup should be? Or I'd ask my players when I was making the practice plan, what do you guys think we need to work on today? And the reason I was doing that, it's the same thing you were just talking about. I wanted to create ownership with my players. I wanted to empower them, to give them confidence to think, okay, this is why I think we need to work on. And then once they're doing it, now that they have ownership in it, how much harder and more focused are they going to work on that skill that we're trying to, trying to accomplish there? So that, in, that empowerment and that ownership thing is huge. You had mentioned that way earlier in our talk about the ownership piece, and that's one way to do it. Yeah. And then the other thing is it's a great learning technique as well. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, that's what they say that the person doing the speaking carries the cognitive load. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when a kid picks, you know, you ask it, Hey, what bunt play would you run here mm -hmm. to make that decision and think through that and give you an answer is a greater learning opportunity than you saying, when the game's close, we're going to run the wheel. And when the game's not close, we're going to run mm -hmm. the regular play. And sometimes in between, we're going to run a crash play. All right, so they, they learned what you said. They can repeat your phrase, but they don't necessarily know what that means. Mm -hmm. When you say, hey, guys, first and second, we're up by one, top of six. What would you guys want to run here? When they sit through and unpack that on their own, they have a true understanding of why mm -hmm. the play is being called and what's the goal of the play, right? And that's for anything in life. Is right? When you're forced to make that decision, you're going to have a much better understanding. 
And, and that circles all the way back to you and I being sons of coaches. Yeah. It, we heard those conversations happening over and over. Mm -hmm. And we understand the value of players being exposed to those types of dialogues. Yeah, the ownership piece is huge. And I think where a lot of leaders fail in that is they're afraid that they're going to lose control. Mm -hmm. And I think it's okay to, as a leader to give your people ownership and encouragement and empowerment. And, you know, I've gone out to the mound before in a situation that we're like, you're talking about a bunt situation. I'm like, okay, I want to get my guys ready. And I asked them, what do you, which one do you guys want to run? One, because I wanted them to have the ownership to feel comfortable in it. If I, if I just dictate that all the time, it doesn't mean that they're going to be comfortable in that all the time. But if they have ownership in it and they feel comfortable and tell me, I think we should run this, let's go. Let's roll with it then. And I have to be okay with it if it doesn't work, right? I have to still, I still have to celebrate their decision there because I want them to have that ownership because my purpose in coaching was I want you to have that ownership when you're the leader someday at your job. Mm -hmm. I want you to feel comfortable with that. So going into the last part here, I know you got to get going. This I could go for days with you on this kind of stuff. This has been so awesome for me. Thank you. What's your purpose in life, Kai? Oof. Gosh, that's really, that's a really tough question. I'll you start know, it this way then. What's your purpose for coaching? Yeah. I mean, my, I, I'd say my purpose for coaching is there's so many factors, right? So one thing is, you know, putting people in the best positions to be successful, right? So allowing people to reach their potential by creating creating environments that they can thrive, right? That's, that's a major, major component. And you're great at it, by the way. I, I appreciate you saying that. And then <laughs> I think another component is, um, you know, it, bringing that like interpersonal joy that comes from team environments. I, you know, I think if anything, being quarantined for a year shown all of us is that a lot of us are fueled by that human interaction more than we realized. Right. And yeah. so I think being a coach is, creating, creating that opportunity for humans to interact and be together and grow together, you know? And then, um, the last part is being a competitor, you know, attempting to win. Yeah. You know, not everything has to be a Hallmark card answer. So you, we all want to be successful in life. We want to, we want to get together with another group of people with a like-minded go and go out there and set out to win, you know? And I think those are kind of the three prong things is I, you know, I, I think I, I like using coaching to make people happy. I like using coaching to help people reach their potential. And I like using coaching to try to win, to get my guys against somebody else's guys and let's go, let's compete, you know? And I, and I think all three of your purposes there. And I have a saying that says when your purpose is greater than yourself, then you're, then you're pretty satisfied with life. And mm -hmm. all three of those purposes were dealing with helping others, yeah. which I think is pretty cool. What about in life? I know you have a wife and a daughter and, and so forth. You know, is this purpose kind of the same thing? Yeah, I think it's very similar, right? Like, you know, I think my, your, your partnership, and you know this much better than I in terms of being married longer and being a father longer. I'm an, you know, I'm a little leaguer in both of those. But I will tell you that that's, like that's the most challenging co-coach you'll ever have, yeah. right? And that's the most challenging player you'll ever have because you don't have a break from them. They're sitting there right there at the table eating with you. And so I think it's very, very similar. You know, it's about creating opportunities for all of us together to grow, for all of us together to succeed, and for all of us together to have enjoyment, you know, enjoy, enjoy life. And then, and then a little bit of win, you know, to, to 
great opportunities that we can, you know, live in nice places and go on nice vacations and, and enjoy life in that regard. And so I think it, it's very, very similar. I think about family um, and I think about your team in, in the same way is that, yeah. you know, when things are successful, people are rooting for the, the greater good. And when, and when you're rooting for the greater good, then you have individual success, you know, along the way. And you could take that a step further. You could say, I think about that the same for country as well. Oh, yeah. So now let's go to passion. What's your passion in life? I, you know, I'm incredibly passionate about teaching. You know, no matter what version, alternate universe, you know, I, I would find myself, I, I think I always find myself teaching. You know, I think that's like my favorite thing. It's, it's not for financial gain. It's not for attention. And it's hard to say when you're a major league baseball coach, people are like, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, my wife will get mad at me, but I'll, I'll go on a run and there'll be two kids playing catch at the park. And next thing you know, you know, I got the two kids throwing into the net and I got their dad filming. And because it's just, that's enjoyable to me. The idea to share and discuss and, you know, I, no matter what, you know, I think about all the time, what I'm going to do when I'm done coaching. Right. And that's a long way away. I'm only 32 years old, but you know, I always tell my wife, maybe I should get another degree you know, maybe I should get a master's or doctorate while I'm coaching. So that way, when I'm done, I can go be a junior college professor, you know, and I could teach Native American history or what, you know, I, that's, that's my, it doesn't even matter the topic. I love the interaction that comes with the sharing and teaching and discussing. And so that's, that's definitely my, my passion. And I think, you know, I have a saying that says purpose equals passion and passion equals purpose. I don't think you can have one with the other and yours too, your two purpose and, and passion just mesh, totally mesh. And it's all, again, it's all about serving others. And, and, and you mentioned COVID real quick, and this will be the last one. The COVID has kind of helped us kind of generate a new perspective. What, what's your perspective on coaching and perspective on life now? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's the same as everyone else. Mine is not unique, right? It's that you realize that the bad days when people weren't dying, when you weren't limited, when businesses weren't struggling, weren't that bad, yeah. right? COVID has provided all of us with that context that we said you need as a coach. Yeah. You know, it's provided us that, hey, gosh, it could be worse. Someone's always got it worse than you, you know? And, and so I think COVID has continued to give me like a big picture gratitude. I'm fortunate that my industry isn't hugely affected. I'm fortunate that I can keep my family safe and that they don't have to go work frontline jobs where they're, you know, subjected to more human interaction. I'm fortunate that I haven't had a direct serious loss within my nuclear family or, or, or my parents or cousins and aunts and uncles. And so I think that's, that's really all that COVID has reminded me. It's, it's reminded me that you can go and make a big error in the ninth inning and lose a game. And it's really not that bad. It's not the end of the world compared to other things. And I think that we've all experienced that to a certain extent. Kai, I want to thank you. Um, this has been so awesome. I, I get so excited to talk to to elite people, and I you're you're an elite person. You're not just an elite coach. You're just an elite person all the way around. And being able to share your story and share your thoughts to help other people. Again, you're always out there teaching and and, and helping people learn and get to be beyond what they thought they could be. And uh, you did that again today, and I appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I'm just starting this out and on my journey to try to help people 
do the same thing and and getting people like you on here is just is so fun for me so i want to thank you for coming on today no it's my pleasure and as i started the show you know i i, I wanted to thank you you know the feeling is mutual and I, i've always been grateful for the mentorship of the high school coaches that you know i've filled similar roles to my father for me as i've lived in different states and been different places uh, along my journey and so i uh, i i'm I'll always remember how kind you and so many others Scott Bullocks and everybody else in between where when I when I uh, became a Coloradan and that's why I was excited to be back and so I'm um, look forward to more conversations like this well we're excited to have you back in Colorado I was so excited when you said you bought a house here and you're living up in Fort Collins and um, you're one of the only college coaches that would ever come to our games I just want you to know you were a grinder and I appreciated well, I appreciate that. that I really I appreciated that I still remember Dean Adams signals so I, I, yeah I <laughs> awesome guy <laughs> 